Welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Hey, if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter. We're starting a new series. Thanks for all of you who have uh, been praying for me and my family. Uh, things are going pretty well for us, and uh, I'll be back in the pulpit more regularly now. Woo! Yeah. Yeah. You don't know what I'm going to say. All right. And um, we're starting a... First, I want to just introduce my family. They never come to the 12 kids. Stand up, would you? Yeah, now. Stand up. <laughs> All right. Guess which one took drama? Um, <laughs> don't talk back to me in the service. <laughs> Josh is doing no shave till degree, shave free till degree. So we're really hoping that uh, in the next 10 years he can wrap up that degree. <laughs> All right, First Peter. Uh, the reason why I'm stoked about this series is that it kind of it takes off in the New Testament of where we were in the fall with the Old Testament, with the idea of the people of God in exile. And Peter writes this with a lot of those same kind of motifs. If you think about Peter's journey, you know, Peter would have been growing up in a very small village. Uh, he was born with the name Simon. And as he, you know, grew up and went to school as a kid, there is kind of this crucial point in their education where they either went on for more education and followed a rabbi or pursued law, or they went to work. And the kids who didn't maybe test as high, they went to work. And so Peter's one of those kids. And as he goes to work, he learns this vocation of being a fisherman. His dad's name was uh, John, and he followed the family trade, and he became a fisherman. And one day that he never would have imagined that the Messiah, the one that he had heard about all growing up as a good Jewish young man, that the Messiah actually came to him and Jesus said, follow me. And that moment and his response to say, yes, I will follow you, that changed Peter's life forever. There is a, a, a three and a half year span of what that following Jesus meant that we get to look at in the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Mark, which is written by Mark, but Mark was basically Peter's disciple, so he's writing for Peter. And you see the, this relationship where Peter isn't just one of the disciples, but he's actually one of the three that Jesus really confides in. Peter is renamed from Simon to Peter in that great moment where he says, Peter, who do you say I am? And he says, My, I say you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus renames him from Simon to Petra, which is rock, Peter. He literally names him Rocky Johnson, right? Which is amazing to me. It's like... If we ever have a problem with Judas, call Rock. Yo, Rock, Judas is, no, never mind. Uh, so 
he goes from these great moments where he's very faithful and he's a great disciple, and then we know there's really bad moments where he doesn't understand what God's doing, where he essentially tries to prevent Jesus from being crucified, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. There is the denial of him publicly where three times he denies that he even knows Jesus. Then there's this great picture of restoration in the book of John where on a beach after the resurrection, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Three times for three denials and he restores him. And, And the fisherman, Simon, from Galilee actually becomes the apostle and the preacher and the one who preaches the first message on Pentecost when the church starts. 3,000 people come to faith and on this rock, Jesus builds his church. When Peter was restored by Jesus, he said, feed my sheep. And what we have here in 1 Peter and 2 Peter is Peter's attempt to do that, to teach and to equip and to empower the followers of Christ to be the people of God in the world. That's what Peter is doing here. And Peter also understood that to do that, to be faithful to Jesus in the world would also mean suffering. And it is pretty much beyond a doubt that Peter ultimately was crucified under Nero, that he was martyred for his faith. And that his journey from meeting Christ into the arms of Christ after death was one of remarkable transformation. And he writes this so that you and I would understand the great salvation that you have been given and the great responsibility to be faithful to this God in the midst of the world we live in. So look with me at chapter one, and we'll just do the first two verses today. Throughout the week, you'll be able to read along uh, the, the themes that come out of 1 Peter and throughout the Bible, there'll be other places. So if you follow us on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, all those readings will be given. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. One of the themes that you see in Peter's writings is that when he speaks of God, the God that he speaks of is the triune God, which is kind of flowery language for saying God is Father, God is Son, God is Spirit. The word God gets passed around a lot these days, and it kind of always has. But for Christians, when we speak of God, we speak of a very particular God, and that is the God of the Father, Son, and Spirit, this triune God. And he says that the Father has chosen them. The Father is the beautiful life giver. The one who generously creates and gives of himself. And the Son is sort of the object of the Father's love. 
The Spirit communicates that love between them. And through Christ, we're included in that relationship. We've been brought in to this community of oneness of Father, Son, and Spirit. And so this Father who is the creator, the life giver, he chooses us. It says, based on the foreknowledge of God, you have been chosen. Now, foreknowledge is something that a lot of people get hung up on. Did he know me specifically and when I would accept Christ and all that? And and there really isn't a huge need to go deeply into what that means. What we know is that God knew that sin would enter the world. He knew our hearts would be rebellious. He knew that the world would go upside down, and he knew that he would save it and recreate it through Jesus Christ. And so if you are a follower of Christ, you have been chosen, you have been elected by this good and generous Father. And he says that you have been sanctified through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Sanctifying essentially means that you've been set apart. It's part of the choosing, part of the electing. It's putting his spirit in you and saying, this is mine. This person is holy. This person belongs to me. And I think when we think of sanctifying and holiness, we think of just behavior like obedience. So we do this wrong and then we got sanctified and now we do it right. But the truth is that beyond behavior, the power of the Spirit's sanctification is that your heart falls in love with Jesus because you have experienced the love of Jesus in your heart. Here's what Paul says in the book of Romans chapter five about the Holy Spirit's role. He says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given us. And so as the Father and the Son communicate love to each other and the Spirit is the communication of that love, then the Spirit comes and pours that love into our hearts. And it is the experience of being loved by God, the experience of of being assured that you are a son or a daughter of God that doesn't necessarily come because you prayed a prayer or did the right things, but because deep in your heart you can cry, Abba, Father, you are my God. I trust you. Because deep in your heart you've experienced the love of God through the Holy Spirit. And Peter says that the The Spirit sets you apart and sanctifies you. To be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. And so you see the Father, you see the Son, and now you see, or the Spirit, and now you see Jesus. And the the picture, the imagery that he's kind of picking up on here is familiar in the Old Testament. But he's saying that something new is happening here in God's choosing of you and sanctifying of you, that he's actually entered a new covenant with you. If you remember back in Exodus, there is this moment where God enters into this covenant with Israel, and it's really that covenant that defines them as a people, creates their identity as a people, And as Moses reads these words over them, they become obedient to him. 
they essentially say yes, we're in. It's a picture really of a marriage kind of covenant between God and his people. And it says that Moses then took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The people responded right above in verse seven, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Well, Peter takes that and in this letter, he wraps that language around Jesus and he says to be obedient to Jesus Christ, we will obey and sprinkled with his blood. There is a new covenant here. And that obedience isn't necessarily just a a one-time obedience, it's the obedience of relationship that I will be in. It's it's kind of uh, like an engagement when we see on uh, you know, Instagram or whatever, it's like, she said yes, and there's a picture of the ring kind of thing. Well, instead of a ring, you get sprinkled with blood. It's a little dark, but that's what, that's what we do. Um, and it's this image that says, we said yes to Jesus, and we've been sprinkled with his blood, not the blood of bulls and calves, but the blood of Christ to be cleansed and to be brought into this love relationship. He shows the the preciousness and the costliness of what Christ redeemed us in when he sprinkled the covenant with his own blood. It says in verse 18, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect. And so at the very beginning of this book, Peter says, listen, I want you to understand the power, the immensity of this relationship you've been given, of this salvation that's come after you. I want you to know the Father's choosing of you, the Spirit's sanctifying of you, Jesus' sacrificial cleansing of you. I want you to understand that God loves you. And when we say God, we mean Father, Son, and Spirit. And what happens because you now belong to God, because you're his people, because you're in covenant with him, is that you've been given a very unique identity as his people. That identity really is paradoxical. On one hand, we hear this language of the elect, chosen, sanctified, sprinkled. But in the same language, we hear exile, alien, stranger. It is a picture of who we are to God also shapes who we are in the world. And the reality is that in this world, throughout the old of the New Testament, that when we come to Christ, heaven becomes our home, he becomes our salvation, our hope, and we live in kind of a peculiar place within the cultures that we find ourselves. Alien and stranger and exile, these are images that he picks up that that he takes through the whole book. So in chapter five, he says, basically I'm writing from Babylon the Great, which would have been Rome. 
at that time. He's pointing back to the time where Israel was taken captive into Babylon and they had to be, learn how to be faithful to God even though they were in the midst of exile. One of the things that is true about the believer is that when it comes to the world that we live in, there are some things, some places, many values that we have to essentially say we don't embrace that. We aren't going to be named by that. That isn't going to be our identifier. And therefore we are looked at in a very weird way in some cases. We're the stranger, we're the foreigner. I was at Eastside campus last Sunday and, and we received one of our first families, one of our first Syrian refugee families to come to Portland, and they came to our east side campus. As I talked to the people who worked with them, uh, they've been here about four weeks, and they, from day one, have said, we want to go to church, we want to go to church. And so they showed up, and we heard their story, they don't speak very much English, which is not the way that you say that. Uh, they don't speak very, very little English, but through text, you text in English and Google Translator translates it, and so they had these great conversations through text, which is really cool. But we learned that they came with two child-sized suitcases, a family of five, husband and wife, three kids, little kids, one set of clothes each. But as they traveled and escaped Syria, they went through Turkey and they came to faith in Turkey. And they were baptized in Turkey. And so they're in the suitcases were these five baptismal certificates. And, and can you imagine as I, as I just understood a little bit of what they're up against. So they come here and they're given an apartment and all that the government's basically has to give them as a mattress. So because of these wraparound care from Imago and Bridgetown and other churches, their whole apartment gets furnished and they get cared for. But basically after rent, they have about $25 to their name, so he needs to find work quick. And, and I just tried to think like after such a horrific journey that they've been on. I mean, we would be like, hey, we're, we're gonna call in sick for a couple years, you know? He's eager to get to work, but how peculiar, how strange Portland must be to him. And not like in the good way that those of you from the Midwest came here to rebel against your parents, right? Uh, and then you got a fixie and a beanie and we're like, yeah, take that, mom, I'm in Portland, you know? It's more of a, like, the values are so different, the traditions are different, the norms, you know, what's normal here is very different than it was at home, and how they navigate these things. And yet, in the strangeness of the moment, something in him said, I have to find the church because I'll be with the people of God. As Peter writes this, he writes to a very diverse group of people. You listen to the, the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. I mean, these are all different people groups with different language and tradition and norms and cultures, and yet in Christ, they are all one people of God. 
And we are, we are such experts at dividing ourselves over our differences. And Christ brings all those differences and says the differences are actually beautiful, but you're still gonna be one in me. Rather than be divided by them, you'll be united in me. I talked to a woman after the first service who's been here for, uh, at Amaga for a long time, but she came from Africa in 1971, and she, she said, I didn't speak a word of English. Out of 11 kids, I was the only one to come here from Africa, and as they drove me around, I was so overwhelmed and, and so like, what am I going to do? But I saw the churches, and I knew I'd be okay because the people of God are here. There is something strange about that and something beautiful about that. That we don't fit in, we don't necessarily belong. Their experience of being true foreigners or true strangers should be our experience in the world. But there's this home, this outpost, where we come and Christ is Lord in this place. He's in, he is Lord with these people. The strangeness isn't strange here. And so this paradoxical identity of alien and stranger is also held up with this beautiful salvation identity. If you look at chapter two, verse nine, he says, but you, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He says you're a holy people, that you're a royal people. You're a holy priesthood, you're a royal, a royal priesthood. In other words, you're blood bought by the precious blood of Jesus. You're spirit born by the Holy Spirit. You're an heir of the Father because you're sons and daughters. It's kind of the equivalent of, let's say this, this princess came over from somewhere overseas and she's royalty. And she comes and she comes into Portland and comes to our church and she's like, I'm royalty. And your first look at her is, it doesn't seem real royal, right? You're just, you're just here. So, you know, get on a bike and fit in. Okay, uh, at home she's royalty. In Portland she's just passing through. And that's who we are. We are people who are blood bought, we're a royal priesthood, we're chosen, we're God's own possession, and yet we don't look all that special in this place. But in his eyes, you are. You are all of this. Priesthood is this picture of representing God to the world that we mediate this Father, Son, Spirit, God to the world. We speak to God on behalf of the world. God save, God redeem, God bring mercy. And yet we speak to the world on behalf of God. Believe, see his beauty, repent, come to Christ that we play this priestly role in the culture. And that identity of alien, stranger, priesthood, royalty, 
that makes us strangers in this world. He puts it this way in chapter two. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live good, such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. That there would be something in our lifestyle, something in how we live that would bear witness. It would make us strange in one regard, but priestly in another. That the way you live causes them to maybe talk poorly or talk positively. But you're living it nonetheless. So you have this triune salvation, you have this unique identity, but you also have a unique relationship with the world. For many Christians, that relationship with the world is a big stumbling block, like how are we supposed to relate? For some, it's you flee. You flee their systems, you flee their education, you just run. For others, you isolate, you build walls, and you stay safe with inside the confines of this. Others, you copy, you take it all, but you make a Christian version of it, which are never very good, by the way. And, and for Peter, I think the way he understood it was that the people of God were be t- to be a scattered community, that you are living in the world, that you are, you are building houses and becoming neighbors and having coworkers and being bosses and employees and all of those things. But as you live in that world, you live for very different purposes. He says this in chapter three, verse 15. He says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. That's where the different purposes come from. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. That as we live in the world, we live as participants with God in his purposes in the world. It means as we do this, we honor the king, we love our neighbors, we, we speak with gentleness and respect, and it doesn't take long to pay attention to the church to realize we haven't done very well at that. We slander the king, we talk bad about the queen, we, I mean, when we think of politics, Christians are just, we're very loud about these things, we, um, We don't do a good job of the gentleness and the respect part. Peter calls us prophetically, even into this moment that you and I live, he's very helpful at saying, here's how, how you live as the people of God in the world for a very different purpose. And perhaps one of the strongest themes that Peter knew very well is the theme of suffering. That having this unique relationship with the world involves suffering. When I was 18, I became a follower of Christ, and I remember them telling me that, you know, once you receive Jesus, your life just becomes awesome. And two months into it, my life was horrible. And I thought, 
you know, I'm 18. It's not like I've suffered a ton at this point in my life. And how strange it was to feel lonely and to lose my friends. And then I'm at church, but man, I'm, I'm clearly a stranger at church because I say all the wrong things at the wrong times and I don't understand anything they're talking about and I cuss during Bible studies, which you're not supposed to do. You're actually never supposed to cuss ever, which I'm way behind the eight ball on that because I was born with a salty tongue, it's called. It's a sailor thing. I, I don't know, it's just, it's a, it's a liability. And I remember I was in this class to become, uh, to get baptized. And this kid who was kind of just this geeky Christian kid, I, I kind of knew him from, from school, but he was a few years younger. And he passes me this verse in 1 Peter 4. And it says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And I remember this incredible peace coming upon me. Like I don't know anything, I don't understand the Bible, I don't know any of this stuff. I know that I've met Christ, I know that I've experienced the Holy Spirit, but the suffering, I I just feel like I'm doing it all wrong. And that idea that it's normal to suffer and it feels strange and it, it doesn't seem right. And to have like someone in the Bible go, hey, don't be surprised. This happens and it feels weird, but you're okay. It was total freedom for me. And every book of the New Testament describes suffering as the normal way of the Christian life. The only people who don't do it are people on TV that want you to send them money, right? It is the way. And part of our unique relationship with the world is that the world has plenty of suffering on its own. You're actually going to obey Jesus in ways that create suffering. If I didn't come to faith, none of my friends would have left. Uh, None of those problems would have happened. I just kept on being me. But because I'm trying to be obedient to the salvation that has graciously come on me in Christ, there's ramifications for that. And obedience, faithfulness, also produces in us a willingness to suffer. That the love of God that has been poured out into our hearts is so deep and transformative that our willingness to relate in this world, even to the point of suffering, is something that we graciously are called to do. And Peter wasn't just preaching it. Peter was crucified. Some you know, stories are that he was crucified upside down as not wanting to feel worthy of being crucified like Jesus. And we don't know if that's true, but it's, we're pretty clear that he was, he was convicted and crucified under Nero. So it's not like he's writing, going, I mean, you know, I don't get it. He gets it. He gets it. 
Peter understands that our journey as the beloved of God and living for God in the world can be a hostile one, a difficult one, one that requires suffering. And as I think about us and I think about our moment and being American evangelical Christians or whatever that means and being Christians in Portland, I think of two objections that just rise up within us. The first is an objection to strangeness and the other is an objection to suffering. The truth is none of us want to be the stranger. None of us want to be strange. We want to fit in, and, and the value streams of any particular place, we kind of find our niche and we embrace them, and that becomes the thing. So whether it's the, the sort of fame and materialism of LA, or the pride and arrogance of Wall Street, or uh, the esotericness of the artist thing, or the cynical secularism of Portland, like you want to fit in. You don't wanna be like, who's the guy you know, with the weird hat or whatever? Uh, you wouldn't even say that in Portland, right? You'd just be like, oh, that's Bob. He wears rabbit ears, that's what he does. So um, that desire to fit in feels so noble and right for us that, that when you say I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, it's just strange and you don't wanna be strange. I know for many of you that have come to faith and I've talked to you, you've said it's almost embarrassing to have become a Christian. Like growing up, you thought very poorly of Christians and you're like, oh my gosh, I believe in Jesus. How embarrassing, right? And I know what you mean. You're not saying it in a derogatory way. You're saying, I became one of those people. I'm strange now, right? But when you really think about what is it you're trying to fit into, where are you trying to fit in? To what end? Why? What's the purpose? Because those good things that all cultures produce, things that are good, great art and food and music and architecture and entertainment and, and economics and all that is good stuff, but when it becomes the ultimate stuff, when it's like, yeah, but if I look like that or if I'm in with this group or if I have the right politics or whatever, then I'm right, then I'm okay, then I'm saved. And you start to make good things ultimate things and they can't save you and they can't satisfy you and they can't fix and heal all that's broken in you. And so to what end is being fitting in going to to save you. Because all that happens is those cultural things that are good become ultimate things that are idols. And they're powerless to do the things you hope they do. Things like security, things like belonging, things like healing, all of that. And the truth is there is beauty in strangeness. There is something beautiful about strangeness in culture. Like, like generosity in a world of greed, that's a beautiful thing. When, when these people come from Syria and finally get here and the house is furnished, 
because people were generous and they don't know their names or faces and they'll never meet them. You're like, ah, yeah, that, something in me, that Imago Dei goes, yes, that is good, that is right, that is beautiful. Hospitality in a world of isolation and self-security that makes room for someone in their schedule and at their table and in their home. You think about how many of our relationships are lived through a, a screen. And, you, and, and we're more connected to people and we're more lonely and more isolated because things like hospitality don't exist online. You unfriend, you swipe left, right? You're like, ah, uh, I mean, that didn't happen 100 years ago. People lived in these little communities. They knew everybody's stuff. They didn't have the option of going, I'm unfriending you, right? It was just like, okay, but I'm still your neighbor and I'm the blacksmith, so. <laughs> That's just how life was. You were in, you were forced into these communities. And now, as, as connected as we are, the conditions are actually much more inhospitable. And so when you meet someone who opens their home and cooks and makes a place for you and you receive that, you're like, this is peculiar, this is strange, this isn't how the world works. Faithfulness, people who are willing to sacrifice and to, to be faithful to God in a culture that is selfish with its own desires being met, that's a strange thing, but it can be a beautiful thing. And there's a cost to it. And the cost is this strange beauty that also has suffering in it. When I think of, of what, how strangeness is really, to follow Christ in our culture, one of the, the major kind of strangeness pictures in our world is faithfulness to Christ when it comes to your sexuality. And I think of many of you who are single and you're struggling with being single because you have been given this body that has all kinds of bells and whistles and, and it was supposed to go off by now and it hasn't gone off and why am I struggling with this? I wanna be faithful to God and I don't want, I, I wanna save that for marriage but at the same time there's a culture that looks at it as stupid and uh, almost oppressive at times. And there's many of you who said, I'm going with culture on this one, God, and, but you're still not satisfied. You don't have that, that life that it was supposed to give. Sarah the Barge, who speaks, she was on staff and been at Imago forever. She spoke in December, and she had a blog this week, and uh, it feels weird talking about this, but it is a blog, so it's not private. Um, but she just mentioned that she's traveling and she's speaking, and and she meets this guy and he's like the guy, you know? He has the personality and the interest and the job and the academics and just intellectually and everything, just a good fit. And they talk for hours and they have dinner and it's this great moment. And then he pulls her close and says, come to my room with me. And, and in the blog, she talks about kind of that tension that's in her and she says, I would like to but I love Jesus more. And then she says, she goes back to her room and she cries alone in her room. 
But the next day as she gets up, she doesn't have regret and she feels this sense of faithfulness to God, this this sense of presence, and yet there's this suffering and this loss there, and we need more of that. People who are married who are going, you know what, I would love to just do my own thing, but I'm going to give myself to my spouse uh, in every way because I love Jesus more. That you're willing to get off the internet and quit going on those sites and because you leave Jesus more. You're willing to, to be faithful and to be single even in those painful strangeness moments because you love Jesus more. And I understand that there's tons of pressure and technologically it probably makes it way more intricate and weird but every culture has spun out sexually. This isn't like, we're not the first generation with uh, reproductive organs and bells and whistles that go off. So they've, you know, for 2,000 years, this has been an issue that people have found their way to be faithful to Jesus. And you can too. But it is a cost. And it is hard and it is strange. And so is it worth it? Or how do we do it? Well, maybe that's why he ends verse two with grace and peace be yours in abundance. Because I know that there is anxiety when we think about obeying in a way that would cause me to be strange or to cause me to suffer. And and what Peter is telling us is that you have been given an abundance of grace and an abundance of peace. You've been chosen. You've been sanctified. You've been cleansed by the Father and the Son and the spirit, that you belong, you're his chosen possession, that there is a love and a meaning to this life that is greater than anything any culture in history could give you. And so in suffering, you're his possession. In exile, you're his possession. In loss, you're his possession. In rejection, in strangeness, you're his possession. You belong to the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And so grace and peace to you. The reason that I think we can say it's worth it, the reason that I think Sarah can say I love Jesus more is because it didn't start with us trying to get God to love us. It started with a God who said, you know what? I'll become the stranger. I'll become the exile. I'll become the foreigner. I'll leave my glory of heaven and I'll come down and I will live among your strangeness and I will suffer as your priest. I will give you my royalty by taking on your disdain. I will do this journey to your death so you could do the journey to my life. Why? Because the Father wants you to belong to him. 
because the Spirit wants to pour the Father's love into your heart. And because Jesus, he says, I want to give you all that is mine. And so is it worth it? Yeah, it's worth it. Because that is the life that is truly life. And the grace and the abundance and the peace that you've been given is the person of Jesus Christ. He's yours. And we get to participate in his purposes, come what may. Because there is a greater salvation than anything this earth can do to us or give us. So as you come to this table this morning, it is a table of abundance, an abundance of grace and an abundance of peace. It's a table where through bread and wine, the body and the blood of Christ, that you are cleansed, you are sprinkled. It is a table where the love of God is poured out into your heart by the Holy Spirit. It's a table where prodigals come home to a father who is standing at the end of the driveway, ready to run to you and give you a ring and a robe and a kiss. That's worth it. That's why you could say, I love Jesus more, because he loved you more. Let's pray. God, we come to you in the name of the Father and in the Son of the Holy Spirit. And this morning I pray that as we consider your, the magnitude of your salvation and the invitation that you give us to come and to be your people, as we think about the identity that you've placed on us as exiles and royal priests, as strangers and a chosen people, as aliens and yet God's own possession. God, we receive that this morning through Jesus Christ. As we think about our relationship with the world, as you call us to be willing to suffer and to participate in your purposes, we pray for courage, we pray for strength. We pray for a willingness, God, to suffer for we know how much you have suffered for us. We thank you above all things that Christ, you have come after us. You became the stranger in the exile, the priest, so that we could belong to the Father through the Son, by the Spirit. In whose name we pray, amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amagodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.